0: So we got into an interesting conversation um in the last couple of days in the filibuster slack channel uh specifically about how Jason might be able to be in two places at the same time because he, he he was confused for a second about when yes. the NWSL final is and or the Challenge Cup final and when DC United plays uh on Saturday. They they overlap with each other it turns yeah, out
1: unfortunately
0: which means Jason cannot go to Philadelphia if that that happens to be within well, the not Challenge Cup either. final, which yeah. yeah. We now know that's not happening. But he can't couldn't wouldn't be able to do that and watch DC United play in Columbus and cover that game the way he does normally at the same time. So Ben proposed cloning Jason. And my As first question, my, <laughs> my first question was immediately, I don't know which is more likely. Would the two Jason clones work together? To achieve a common goal, or would they battle for superiority? I kind of lean toward the latter Jason uh,
1: yeah, there is an inborn uh competitiveness um, where I think both Jasons would be looking to um, maybe not completely obliterate the other jason I, I did it it crossed my mind that this could turn into like a Highlander situation um, yeah uh, where there can be only one we- except neither of us would be good at sword fighting, so it would be some other method of uh <laughs> of eliminating the other and and receiving the quickening, uh, which is the lightning bolt of power that hits you that but doesn't kill you. In fact, makes you slightly stronger.
0: Um, Gives you the power of your yeah your, your defeated spell, enemy, uh,
1: which is yeah. interestingly also kind of the idea behind the Mega Man video games. So I I, I don't yeah. know
0: whether the a Highlander or Mega Man thought of that first, but um, I had maybe... never considered that parallel. But you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. Mega Man uh, is just Highlander with Highlander an arm robots. cannon. Um,
1: <laughs> but yeah, I, I think I think the in the short term, certainly uh, agreeing that one person do one thing and one person do the other would be healthy. But I think at some point, one of the Jasons would have a sudden moment of inspiration that would lead to positioning the other Jason to have to do more drudgery to make the two Jasons enough money to live. So the other Jason could live more of a life of leisure, but this would be the the on the constant battle between them uh, would be which one can push more of the drudgery onto the other, and which one can claim more of the leisure uh, for themselves. Uh, and so I think this would be a a lifelong struggle rather than a, uh, a battle it, to the death. I think it, it would, would be, be a, a frenemy
0: situation,
1: kind of. Yeah, uh, kind of a, an attempt. To, it reminds me a little of a. Um, a friend of mine in college who was very good at things like proposing that we all go somewhere, uh, to go drink, like, let's go to DC and drink Uh, and it maybe being at a place that couldn't be reached easily by Metro. Uh, and then you'd arrive at his place. He'd be like, let's all pregame at my place. And the last person to arrive for pregaming would be stuck. They'd be like, everyone else is already drunk. You have to drive. Um, and which also lends itself as an aside to a pregame in which everyone is ju- everyone that arrives is just trying to drink as fast as possible so that they can actually back up that claim when the very healthy approach to the unfortunate to... person who spent five extra minutes doing something uh, before they headed out the door is the one that gets screwed over. Um, and since I was often uh, working uh, on Saturdays, for example, like Saturday afternoons, I would often have work to do. Um, this was often me, the one that was arriving a little late and was thus uh thrust into the role of driver for the evening, which I would never be happy about. But this is kind of the idea of uh um, trying to claim some claim some fun times and push some responsibilities. Um and so I think I'm well prepared, but also obviously my clone
0: would be just as well prepared. So it'd be a very fascinating battle. Yeah, I'm I, I'm mostly happy to hear you won't set up a prestige style Christopher Nolan mm. sequence of murder slash suicide daisy chain uh, to frame are you, one are of you us. Gonna, are you trying to give away that movie? Uh, it, at this point, it's been it? out long enough that it has been, been out I for feel a long like, time. I feel like people, if, if I'm spoiling the prestige for you, that's your own fault. I,
1: also, if you haven't seen that and you're going to see a Christopher Nolan movie, that should be the first one you go see. Uh, that, that is his best work, um, for me. Hey, welcome in. I thought we had it. I thought we had no, it. Nope. Uh, can't can't do it. Uh, this is the dynamic that the clone Jason would have to endure all the time.
0: Hey, hey, welcome in. This is filibuster, the Black and Red United and uh, Clone Philosophy Podcast. I'm Adam Taylor, joined as always by the one and only. Jason Anderson, we are both from blackandredunited.com. Ben Bromley is on assignment tonight, uh, so he won't be joining us. Um, we are talking about D.C. United's 4-1 loss in San Jose, and after that we are going to invite our friend Pat Murphy from MassiveReport.com and the Massive Report podcast to uh, give us a little preview of D.C. United's trip to Columbus this Saturday. Watch it 30 p.m. on NBC Sports Washington, Teleexitos. Exitos, DCUnited.com and ESPN Plus, all of that depending on your physical location, of course. Before we do anything, though, Jason, what are you drinking?
1: Uh, I have a good one, Uh, one that I haven't had before that I I had meant to buy a couple weeks ago, but I had to make, basically, I was like, I'm going to take one six-pack out of my cart uh, before I get in line, and this was the one that went out. Uh, But I went back out to a different thing over the weekend and needed to bring some beers with me. So I stopped at this liquor store that had almost nothing good, but they did have Key Brewing's uh, Positive Mental Attitude Pills, which has a can art inspired by uh, Bad Brains. Oh, nice. Their their first album. It's kind of an iconic. You've seen the the Tifo at the stadium uh, inspired by it as well. Um, It's also just a really good beer. Um, It's a tall boy on top of that, which uh, I think a tall boy is inherently more charming than a regular sized beer, in my opinion. Um so yeah, the combination <laughs> of uh it's it's a really tasty beer. Um it's got a little more flavor-wise going on than most other uh Pilsners. So yeah, if you find it, it's a bright yellow can with a lightning bolt on it. You can't miss it. Uh and and uh, pick it up, it's good.
0: I'm drinking uh DC Brow's In Session IPA. It is their as the name might imply, their their session. Uh, beer it's it's tasty it's got a yeah. lot of flavor for only being four and a half percent so i'm pretty happy with it um you know i i decided to to drink a little bit lighter this week yeah. um after going a little bit harder than i should have on derby day so yeah. um yeah that, y- you know this is
1: this is the part of the show where if ben were on we would be setting him up for having a, a beer from his state as well. And he would instead have like a Manhattan.
0: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> or a high ball combining right. two things that you don't expect to be combined yes. together.
1: Yeah. He has been on a run of some real strange ones. Uh, and that yeah, maybe would sometimes been... they work
0: though. He says some- sometimes, sometimes they don't. They, yeah. Sometimes they clearly do not. Uh, speaking of things that don't work. Um, DC United at San Jose. Uh, we, we said at the start of the year that, um, there could be at the start of the season that there'd be some rough parts, uh, and that DC United would take some lumps as they work the kinks out of their implementation of Hernan Losada's maximum overdrive system. And, um, uh, that's what we saw Saturday at PayPal park as the earthquakes ran DC United out of San Jose four to one, uh, DC United literally never really in the game, um, san jose scored in the first minute of action and uh really didn't look back um before we get into the specifics I, I think it's worth mentioning that the quakes although they have a different implementation of the idea the general concept of creating a lot of chaos on defense to facilitate your attack is the same uh there as it is with Hernan Losada's losada system matias almeida and and Hernan Losada, they, they share some of those principles, even if they they get there in a slightly different way. Um the difference is that the Quakes have a two-year head start. They're in year three of Matias Almeida, we are in game three of Hernan Losada. So I think we we saw some of that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, um the Quakes looked fitter, um, which is both if there's one overarching similarity between the two coaches, is that it, it they, deba- they demand they demand incredibly high fitness levels and uh, mental buy-in on on the effort that comes with that. Um, I think DC at this point seems to have the buy-in, but it's, you know, buying in isn't the whole thing. There is a physical process that has to take place that um, the quakes do look like they've, they've solved that puzzle. Um, Their players all appear. uh, I, I didn't see anyone that looked like they were lacking fitness wise, you know, we, when we talked to Alicia last week, she mentioned that you know Trofius Lopez had not played uh, in in a little while at Chivas, so you'd think you know maybe he's not going to be that fit. But um, I didn't see any lag from him. Maybe he's not as fit as some of the other guys, but he's not behind by enough where you're like, oh, this is a problem. Um, and and DC clearly has uh, a a series of fitness related problems. Some of it is just the guys that are available cannot sustain ninety minutes of the pressing intensity and so sometimes that manifests as simply not pressing for a little while sometimes that manifests as trying to press and doing a bad job of it um and you you get played through um i think there's an element of that on san jose's fourth goal um in the minutes before it um but yeah in general um the quakes definitely look much further down the path um, but I will I will say, you know, you, you said that the that United wasn't in the game. Um I, I do think there's a moment there where if they get to halftime without conceding um that third goal, maybe yeah. they maybe they can make something out of it because that they, they didn't really deserve to be at 2-1, um, the way that first half hour played out. But they did after Tony Alfaro scored, and then Chris Seitz made a pretty good save, I think two minutes after the goal. Um, there was a, uh, mm-hmm. maybe almost 10 minutes there where DC was looking more dangerous and looking like they might be able to chip away at this thing and maybe mount a comeback. It's just that they gave up a third goal before halftime. Uh, and at that point it was like, all right, this is probably going to be a long shot. Uh, and so it was, you know, they, they did have their chance, you know, Eric Sorga, um, had an empty net to shoot at, didn't put that away, which is, a Maybe a maybe a problem going forward with the, you know,
0: this team's yeah.
1: forwards well, in We'll general, talk about that some later. Yeah, but, you know, um, there was definitely an element of if this were played in a neutral venue, maybe it looks a little closer. Uh, if this were a month from now, it probably looks a, quite a bit closer. But, uh, you know, San Jose is in their way kind of where DC is going. Uh, but, exactly.
0: You know, and- we're not there yet. Yeah, it, we've heard it on Losada talk about automations, basically just decisions that the players don't even consciously make. They know mm-hmm. that what they have to do, and they just automatically do it. And I think San Jose has some of those. Some of the reads on defense, some of the the attacking movements are similar. It, it, to reference another Christopher Nolan movie, um, they were born in the chaos. We merely adopted it. Mm. So um, I, I think it's just when you have two similar ish styles like this, that are going to just be total chaos. The one, the team with more experience in it is the one that's got to be favored, especially when one of them is just implementing it. Um, Also worth noting, of course, DC United's injury list is comically long. Um, I I know a lot of national writers and, and talkers on soccer are, kind of laying into on Losada because he keeps being asked about fitness after the games and he keeps answering the question. It's like, yeah, players weren't fit when they came to camp. Some were overweight. And we're seeing some of the consequences of that now. But I think a lot of people are trying to pin the injury list on Losada, saying that these are muscle injuries occurring in training because of overwork and overuse. And I, I don't know that the evidence is there to support that. A lot of these players got hurt before they got to camp, uh be it last year, surgeries for for mead and for Burn Bomb on loan for Paul Ariola, or they got stepped on in a preseason game like Griffin Yao. Um like there's so many injuries that they aren't all one thing. Some of them might be overuse, some of them might be um, you know, pushing players and training too hard. But I don't know if you can really make a strong case that. That's the actual cause of uh, the extent of the list.
1: Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you can make that case. Um, I, I think you can make a case that um, you know what. One thing that Lozada has said a couple of times, and kind of reading between the lines with some other interviews, like Paul Arriola, and um, I think Russell Knauss also said something too that you can read in between the lines and think that um, what it seems like is that Lozada. Um, doesn't want to bring players back when they're at like 95% because he doesn't want this to turn into a further setback. Um, And since he's getting his players fit and since it's early in the season, he's saying like, let's make sure you're actually 100%. Um, Let's get you all the way back fit rather than most of the way. And then you play your way through that last couple percent because uh, the last thing the team needs is to say, Oh, such and such is back. And then he plays, you know, you don't want to do an inter Miami. Um, if anyone saw their game over the weekend where, uh, uh, Robbie Robinson pulled his hamstring a week ago and then came back and was subbed back in. And then after 11 minutes, grabbed the same hamstring and had to be subbed off again. Um, and so you had the rare Miami substituting a substitute. Um, not a, not a great thing, uh, for them, uh, bad situation, but you know, that's, that's Miami for you. Um, And DC doesn't want, we we don't want that for DC United. Um, So yeah, some of it is, uh, I assume that maybe under Olsen and and maybe if this were a playoff game, maybe some of these players would no longer be on that anachronist or that that bizarrely named player availability list when it's a list of players who are not available. Um, But yeah, I I mean, it it is a range of injuries. Um, You know, Ariola's injury happened while he was on another continent. You can't do anything about that um, several of the guys were had had a surgery in the case of Hamid um the original surgery that was going to keep him out that that happened before uh losado was even signed uh, as head coach if if I have my timelines correct um, so some of it is just a you know in mls if you have four players unavailable due to off season surgeries and or loans. Uh, any further injuries start to feel like a crisis right away. Um, and that's part of where DC is. Um, there are some knocks that have happened. You know, the um, Knauss missed this game, uh, which Los- the way Losada explained it was a, a, is a little bit of a lengthy explanation. He called it a special case where uh, Knauss had got his second COVID vaccine Tuesday they had a very hard session in and when Lozada says very hard session, I can only imagine what that means uh, on Wednesday. And, you know, he said that, you know, maybe, maybe having him do that session, he didn't say that it might've been a mistake, but it sounds like maybe there's a thought of like, well, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Um, But he got through Wednesday fine. But on Thursday uh, just striking a pass, he said he felt something in his adductor and they decided not to bring him along. So you know, it's one of those where maybe, you know, maybe it's just a like, well, it grabbed a little bit and we don't want to take a chance. And after a week of rest and massage, or not a week, but a few days of rest and massage, the problem goes away. Um, I don't know. Uh, That's, you know, I think the broader thing by saying, I don't know, is kind of, you know, brought up my main point, which is like, there's a lot of stuff that none of us know where the vast majority of people are lay people when it comes to soccer injuries um and so unless we had professional training and like the data underlying all of these things and and a way to understand all of it um it is hard for us to say you know people brought up the Roberta injury um but as Lozada pointed out that was an injury based on a pre-existing um an old hamstring strain that happened three years ago um that it it sounded he sounded a little frustrated that it hadn't been found before that this was news to them, that this Mm -hmm. hamstring had happened. Um, and this is, that is when he finished saying that, that's when he went into the answer that maybe people may saw, um, which was the one about how DC United hired him to make changes and, and you change the way they do things. And this is kind of one of the things that has to change. So, um, I don't want to say that he said it uh but it sounded to me like someone who was maybe like you know guys i thought we were in agreement that you know our our injury detection methods have to change and it seems like maybe we made this signing without the full diligence i don't know that that's what he thinks but like it kind of is hard not to wonder that when you run you know hearing his quote hearing it in the context of being on the full press conference um so yeah, but, you know, the the big story with DC is the injuries. This is what everyone's focused on. Some of it is that look, you know, Lozada was asked questions about injuries. It wasn't that he came in and his opening remarks were injury-based. Um uh and and I think he's kept a very like and I think Felipe echoed this in his comments in the same press conference which were that um you can't spend time using the absent players as an excuse, the players that are here still have to get the job done because they're the ones that are here. And so if, if, if they can't get it done, then you won't get it done. So, um, you know, I I don't think the team is sitting around focused on it too much. Like, obviously it's, I'm sure it's something they're thinking about a lot, but they're also not like, well, we can't do anything while these players are hurt.
0: Um, right. And Losada has straight up said, he's not changing his style. He's not changing right. his methods. And I I've heard some criticism of him, uh, mostly from not DC United fans um, about how maybe he should moderate his approach and build things up step-by-step. Step. I don't know if that's the right approach though, because when you have a system that is kind of all encompassing and demanding as his, you know, you're going to like, he, he doesn't think he can win playing another way. So why would you play another way? Right. Um, take your lumps and build off of it. And I, that's what Matias Almeida did. And now he's he's generally lauded. Um, and and it took
1: like Almeida's project took a while. Um,
0: that first year, it was
1: like, well, you got to watch the quakes because, yes, they might win like a four three, but they might lose seven one. And it, who knows? Um, and people were like into it, but also like, well, I don't know. I think we even talked about it on the show. Like, I mean, yeah. that's great for them. I'm not sure I can handle it um well we better learn to handle it because we we get a chance we're we're kind of doing the same thing here um but you know it's week three um and this injury i've been
0: preaching patience let's i'm going to keep preaching patience for now
1: and losada himself has said from almost from day one uh maybe the second time he was available to the media he was like this is going to take some time there's a fitness problem." uh that is going to be worked on and rooted out but it's going to be a process it's not going to be in the next you know the first month of the season isn't going to be five six wins it's going to be it's going to take some time and it is um you know the one win came via two goals that are hard to replicate and the you know the revs game i think is an unlucky defeat the quakes loss is not i think that one is a you know Maybe not a, maybe not a perfectly accurate scoreline, but I certainly didn't feel like, Oh, we're hard done by, by not getting three points here.
0: Yeah. That's one where expected goals didn't tell the whole story. DC United uh, has, has yet to have a result that agreed with the expected goals. Um, They, they lost the expected goals fight against NYCFC and beat both New England and San Jose on expected goals, but obviously expected goals aren't, aren't what actually goes on the scoreboard. Um, Let's talk about the goals, specifically the goals against uh, in, in San Jose and, and see what went wrong and where DC United needs to improve. The first one, um, DC United was actually doing pretty well with the ball and pressing to win turnovers in the, those first you know 45 seconds. And then Frederick Briant makes a pass straight up the middle that Junior Moreno watches go by and 10 seconds later, the ball's in the back of the net. Um, not the cleanest paths from Briant, but just, I have no idea what Junior Moreno is doing there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think if there's a, if there's a criticism of Briant, it's that the pass might be ever so slightly overcooked, just maybe a little too quick. um, And maybe a little bit too far ahead of Moreno, but we're talking like real slim margins here. Um, And Moreno still gets there. Um, He still gets his foot in the area of the ball. you know, it was described as a dummy, uh, if that's what it was, um, because you look at the replay and I've looked at it a bunch of times, like, I don't know if this is a dummy or if he just miscontrolled it to such an extent that he did not touch the ball. Um, cause either I could see either. Um, but in either case, it's not good news. Um, either he needs to be able to control that ball or he needs to not commit a, you know, your, your first trip to the West coast in however many months, first trip to the West coast under a new coach, um, first minute of a game uh, at central midfield while most of your players have pushed up in an attacking posture. This is not the moment for a dummy. Um, You try a dummy later when there might be like, maybe you as a defensive midfielder are the cover for the person doing the dummy. Um, But, you know, I credit to San Jose, as soon as the ball went past him and I can't remember which off the top of my head, which Quakes player uh, collected the ball as a result of that, but they pushed play forward right away. Um, because they sensed the moment. They said, you know, hold on a second. DC's entire midfield and attack have pushed up. Uh, we can bypass all of them with one pass and all of a sudden have uh, a huge amount of space to work with. Um, and from there, you know, DC, you know, initially the, the impression was that, like, how did DC not close down uh, Lopez on his shot? But when you watch the play, everyone is scrambling to get back. And so everyone's in a dead sprint to get to the box, uh, because it's such an emergency that you have to go 100% to get back to the box. Um, but that results in, and San Jose did the right thing by not just continuing to attack at full bore, but saying, like, let's cut it back because all you guys have overrun this space. Um, and from yep. there, uh, Lopez had, you know, the soccer player equivalent of about a week to figure out where he was
0: going to shoot. And right. they also not, had so many numbers going forward yes. at that yeah, they point. That so that like, th- a 3v2 real t- quick yeah Tony Afaro could not stay on Lopez because there was another runner that he had to follow and Fred mm-hmm. Riant was slow to get across because he had been uh originally on uh Cade Cowell and Heinz Ike managed to you know take that over and it's just it was a 3v3 that looked a lot more like a 3v2 and yeah. that that's never going to go well for the defense um I, I don't know if Sites was positioned well on that. I think that's more the story on this next goal. Yeah. Um, the first
1: goal, I'm not too worried about his positioning. Um, it's it's a curler that tucks into the very bottom corner. Like, you know, the mistakes on that goal are much more upfield. Um, you cannot, that dummy just can't happen. If it's a dummy and if it's a missed touch, then that's, you can't miss that touch.
0: Yeah. Uh, second goal starts off, uh, in San Jose's half, the balls on the kind of bouncing around, um, Moses Nyman kind of intercepts a pass, but it bounces right to another San Jose player passes around a little bit. And then all of a sudden the ball is just sent up the the right sideline for San Jose and Cade Cowell and Frederick Brianna in a foot race. And again, not a situation DC United ever wants to see, uh, Cal beats him to the ball rounds him. Um, and and manages to get a, a shot off against Sites, uh, just curls it past him at the near post this time. Um, I, I think the there's a couple points where, where this could have changed. I think not allowing that pass in the first place just is, is the right answer. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're Fred Brian, as soon as you see that ball going ahead of you and, and Cade Cal there, I don't know when the right time to foul is, but like when you can do that without taking a red um at midfield at, at midfield is the answer I <laughs> yeah. think as soon as the ball is hit he just has to grab Cal and pull yeah. him down uh, yeah, because that's a yellow
1: him. yeah but Take if the yellow you... and just be like I you know guys if you leave me in this situation against a very fast player at midfield with no cover this is the best outcome
0: yeah um but that didn't happen and as soon as Cal gets on the ball there's no one back and so if if Brian fouls at that point it's red right um which gets us up to sites who I think was, was pretty badly out of position on this one gave up way too much of that near post. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the, the outlet pass, unfortunately it looks like it's just kind of an unfortunate happenstance from a little, I described it as pinball in the recap because, you know, San Jose tried, they had a throw in DC pressed that this is a recurring theme. They want to press these throw-ins very aggressively. Um, And San Jose tried an outlet pass that Moses Naaman had to lunge for, but he blocked. He made the interception, but the ball just sort of looped up and back towards um, the quakes. It kind of went back almost in the direction of where it came. And you have a little bit of like, well, it's a loose ball bouncing around. Um, It just so happened that when it fell to someone's feet, when it fell to Espinosa's feet, he had a window to pass up the flank and just bypass everyone. And, you know, again, San Jose... A little like DC is not really interested in if if that bypass, everyone pass is available, they're gonna take it. They're not looking, they're like, oh, we don't pass, we don't send 60 yard balls upfield. We're we're too good for that. Uh they'll say, no, really, we can make this pass, great. That's fantastic for us. Um and so Espinosa is just playing an outlet pass up the wing. Um, and it's kind of hopeful. It's kind of like, look, if if Cowell gets to this and takes it for a run down the touchline, that's great for us. Um, because we were in deep trouble we were being pressed in a bad spot um so this is you know this is pretty convenient um you know I give Espinosa a lot of credit for just giving it enough of a little bit of a bend that it kind of allowed Cowell to direct himself inside um and and Cowell did really well from there because it turns out he's very good um but yeah (laughs) uh unfortunately the way DC plays um And this is something we were kind of talking about when it was a theoretical how DC played, Um, you know, with Briant, with the team pressing this high up the field. If the other team has speed up front, this is always going to be a possibility like this is a risk DC is taking the high press is there. But if you can play in behind, you might end up with your center forward and Fred Briant in a foot race. And that's not Briant's game. Uh, never has been. I I don't think there's a moment in his career where that's been his game because I don't imagine that at 23 he was very fast either.
0: Yeah, um, that's the that's is the argument for Donovan Pines in that right. middle center back role. Right. Um, if you're going to press high, you're going to give up these opportunities, and you need someone back there who can both emergency defend and catch up with people. Right. And that's much more Donovan Pines than Frederick Riant.
1: Yeah. And that, and then that you're you're right about the goalkeeping positioning. Um, the Sites comes out and he he's just he is one full step uh to the right away from where he needs to be. Um because if his angle is better, Cowell probably doesn't go near post or maybe he does and he just shoots it right at Sights. Um but if he chooses not to, then he's he doesn't have anyone up there with him. So if he yeah. opts he... not to even go for the shot, then he's probably or if he says, "Oh, near post isn't on," he's probably pulling play back. Um, and not going to goal, and who knows how that we're going
0: for a much higher degree of difficulty right. shot, like trying to roof it yeah. um which but, that from that distance that's not an easy thing to do without just right. skying it
1: but that window was there, and uh you know that's on sights he's gotta when he comes out to cut that angle down, he has to actually cut the whole angle down, and he he cut most of the angle down, but he left the easy part um right and and Cowell didn't really have much trouble putting it past him, so you know. I know we're going to talk about goalkeeping here um, between these next couple of goals. And um, I know a lot of people saw how close that third goal was to sites when it went past him. Um, But that one, as we'll discuss in a second, that's not the one to get mad about. If you want to get mad about a goal with goalkeeping last night, or um, on Saturday, start with this second goal, because this one just a little bit better positioning and he probably isn't conceding the goal he conceded.
0: Yeah, the third goal sights was completely unsighted. He was screened on a a laser volley from Jackson Ewell. Right. Um that came off a corner that again pinballed around and popped and they, up and he just pulled it out of the air on a full volley. Um waited until it was almost on the ground, yeah. but but did pluck it out of the air. Um fantastic hit, just a full credit to to Jackson Yule on that one and there, I, there's nothing anyone could do. Um sites was screened I think there probably wasn't enough time the the screener was behind the last defender who was near the play but there were there was one or two players who had chased the original ball basically to the end line and were coming back out. I don't think there's enough time from the time it pings around till Yule hits it for them to push up far enough to put that screener into an offside position so it's just it's this is one of those things like these goals happen sometimes this is the the brendan Hines eye laser of of this game it's just nothing anybody could have done
1: And, and you know the the information for a goalkeeper when you are looking at traffic like that one of the things you are looking at if you can't see the ball directly you're at least looking for body shape of someone who might be hitting a shot because that gives you at least information as to like He's probably aiming over here. Um, but if you go back and watch the the shot form from Yule, his plant foot slips. He is almost himself on the ground.
0: Yeah, he's um, horizontal when he hits the stick. Yeah,
1: he is, he is falling over in a way that makes you think he completely sliced the ball and it might not even go out for a goal kick. Um, and, you know, unfortunately for DC, he's probably about like, like three quarters of an inch from doing that. If he just is a slightly off, he hits the ball quite right. Um, instead of it being a laser into the goal, it goes flying off in one direction and out for a throw in. Um, but yeah, uh, the problem from DC there isn't goalkeeping. It's defending the initial and the recycled corner. It's kind of, it's a funny goal because I saw that, I I don't know if MLS has retracted this, but they've given Tanner Beeson credit for an assist, um, on the goal. And if you watch it, Tanner Beeson is like falling over to try and keep the ball in the box. And it just sort of like loops up off of him as an accident. It's not, it's not him lobbing the ball. It is an accident. The the ball hits him and flies out to Yule, um, who, you know, he's had a couple goals like this where he's clearly got a knack for that volley, um, maybe at a higher level than most players, which is, it's an extremely difficult thing. Like guys can do it in training, uh, but, at full speed in a game doesn 't come off very often because usually someone 's doing a better job of shutting you down um on another night. maybe it hits a defender and goes wide uh maybe he doesn 't catch it quite right um or maybe it's it 's just slightly over and it does hit sights and sights saves it without necessarily being aware of where the ball is because he he saw that ball when it was like at the six. almost past him yeah yeah um and there's just not much a goalkeeper can do at that point and the job of a team is to make sure your goalkeeper doesn't end up in a situation where they don't have a play um and so if anything the fact that sites reacted fast enough to get his hand near the ball tells me that his reactions are are still pretty sharp it's just there's not much you can do when the ball fits through that small of a window with a bunch of moving pieces uh it's like a trick shot it's like if you go on youtube and watch people who like you know, chip a ball through the driver uh, or through the cab of a truck and it lands in a trash can across the street. That doesn't happen in games. So,
0: you know, what are you going to do? Uh, the last goal that was given up came late in the second half. Um, Cade Cal again involved. He he gets down on the right side, somehow gets several yards ahead of Joseph Mora. Um I, the replays were cut in such a way that I couldn't actually tell how that happened because MLS does a bad job of putting plays in context. And it's uh, been a frustration since I think for the entire duration of this podcast. Um, I just want them to cut the plays a little bit earlier <laughs> so we can see what happens that sets up the guy being wide open instead of just showing the guy being wide open. Um, but more ends up way behind Cade Cowell who who sends in a, a looping crossover. Chris sites to the onrushing Jackson Ewell who heads it down and in past sites. Um, we're running a little short on time, so I, I don't want to go into a deep breakdown on this, but real quickly, Jason, what did you see here?
1: Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a big chance to give away chip to the back post where Yule is unmarked. Um, but what I will say is that the header wasn't very good and sites should keep it out. Um, so this was another goal that's, that's soft. Um, he got over to where the ball was going to be in time. He got hands on it. Um, it wasn't very well hit. I think he did not expect it to be savable. Um, and that might've informed or changed his, um, his, uh, his leap, his, his posture. I don't know, but um, that's one he should keep out. Like it, it was a tricky save, but it's one he definitely can make and should have made. I, it didn't change the result. I think DC was going to lose three, one into the four, one, but um yeah, he's got to make that save too. Uh
0: lots of other struggles in this game. I think we um we've we've highlighted Eric Sorga. He missed. He he got the ball stuck under his feet and rushed a shot against an open net instead of either pushing it further away from himself to get a better shot or taking another touch to do it. He tries to just kick the ball as Devin McTavish pointed out in during the game using only his hip muscles basically to generate power and it ended Mm -hmm. up being a slow roller that was saved off the line. Um, if he takes another touch, then he, uh, he he gets more power on it and has a chance to put it into an empty net.
1: Yeah. Or, or if he just decides to smash it, um, if he, he doesn't need to take the extra touch, he could just decide to crush the ball, um, and you just have to set yourself up to do it. And I think he wanted to take the patient approach and make sure it got over the line. Um, but in doing so, he actually closed his own window. Um, I think Felipe said after the game that he pulled him aside after the game and was like, uh, I believe the quote is like, next time you get a chance like that, break the net. Um, and yeah, it's the right call. And it's not always the right call. It's not even often the right call uh, to hit one like that. But it, on this occasion, definitely the right call. From inside him. the
0: six with nobody there. Yeah, really. Um, yeah. hit it with authority. Two players pulled at halftime in this one: Junior Moreno and Jamil Assad, both uh, taken out. I think for very easily characterized performance issues mm-hmm. in this one. Junior Moreno not only had the uh, the get, like didn't get to the ball. I don't know. It won't go down as his giveaway, uh, which is uh, a little bit unjust, I think, for that first. This is goal. why
1: you have to watch the games instead of pouring through data.
0: Yeah. Um, But if you look at the data, he didn't win any challenges. Like he won no duels. He won no tackles uh, or or very close to none in, in that first half. He was, he was a non-entity in this game, which is part of why every time the ball turned over, San Jose came running with numbers. Um, He, he just, he, he was invisible, uh, Mm -hmm. which in some time, sometimes you want your defensive midfielder to be invisible but in this system it, it, you can't be.
1: No, it's it's a for for him to be anonymous is not possible. The way that DC wants to play, they're not going to be a team where your defensive midfielder doesn't get noticed um because they are both going to have to make tackles. You know, when we talk about that defensive midfielder who kind of fades into the background but quietly runs the game, those are guys managing space and managing passing angles, but the way DC wants to play, it, there is just everything is a one V one battle. There are so many battles and so many physical um, challenges on the ball that when you think of playing style, Russell Knauss seems tailor me. Um, Moreno uh, might find his time kind of short as a starter, quite frankly, because he hasn't looked all that good in any of the games yet. Maybe the new England
0: game was the best of the three for him. Um, yeah. Straight up. I want Nyman and Knauss next week. Yep. Yeah.
1: Well, and, you know, the added factor of Felipe got through 45 minutes and, you know, it was kind of a, an easy 45, quote-unquote, because San Jose was standing off so much. He didn't have as much to do, so he could actually manage the tempo of the game and things like that. But, like, if Felipe can, can play 45 against the Quakes, um, then that is an indicator that his knee is not too far from being him being able to start games. And if Felipe can start games... And you think about a team, that if you're saying your team's defensive midfielders both need to be able to put in challenges, well, Felipe and Canales can put in some challenges. Um, so even if it's not Nyman, even if Losada looks at the tape and is like, well, I'm not as convinced by Nyman as some other people were, um, he still has another option because now DC is closer to having uh, their full complement of central midfielders than they were before. So yeah, M- Moreno's spot is, I think, in trouble right now because he just hasn't he hasn't adapted his game and or hasn't just hasn't really performed up to what he's shown in the past he can
0: yeah what do you what do you think of Moses Nyman I don't think he was at he he wasn't at his ceiling certainly against Mm -hmm. San Jose but I think he he provided some passing and some he he was trying to play the Russell Knauss role which I don't think is necessarily right for him defensively. I think if he's playing the junior Moreno role, the slightly less runny, uh, tackley of the two central midfielders, and then Knauss does the, the proper demolition derby. Um, I think that makes a ton of sense because it gives, puts him into space to pass. It, It makes him the outlet for the center backs, allows him to progress the ball through midfield primarily, and then be a late runner, which I think all of those things suit him really well. Um, so I really that's one of the reasons I want to see that combination in particular. But what did you make of his game on Saturday?
1: You know, I, I thought it was overall given given the way the game itself went for DC, I thought he played pretty well. Um I thought the the fact that he's so good at getting out of tight spots and playing out of um uh of out of pressure made him a really good choice for the Quakes. And um there were some really good moments of him getting out of what looked like difficult situations on the ball not just getting out of them but getting out of them facing San Jose's goal. He wasn't having to turn out of pressure and play back. He was able to get out of the pressure and actually look up. Um which is a really it's it sounds like a small thing but it's a major difference between especially well, if you and want it's to be huge a in this team. system. Yeah. yeah. If you want to be a vertical team and you can't play out of pressure and look up, then it's almost better for you to have not gotten into the pressure in the first place. Um but the fact that Niaman can draw that pressure and still get out of it and play the pass um it's a really positive sign for him. Um, I I don't want to pretend that this was some sort of perfect game from him because it wasn't, but um, I do think there is a significant uh, upside to him playing uh, in this system with the fact that he can play those medium and longer range passes on the ground. Um, He's not just hoofing it and hoping that someone chases it down. He actually has the vision and the courage to say like, this is a, is a small window, but I can fit the ball through there. So I'm going to do it. Um, So yeah, it, it, I think he did nothing to remove himself as a serious option uh, in central midfield right now. um, And not just because Moreno's form seems to be pretty uh, troublesome at the moment. Uh, Even if it was okay, I would say that it seems to me like Nyman has kept himself certainly in the running to play at least some of the minutes. And we don't know where can, you know, maybe Knauss' problem does go away very quickly. Um, maybe he does need another week to be absolutely sure. Like we said, Losada doesn't want 95% fit players. He wants 100. Um, So it's a situation to watch. Um, But I I don't think he did his chances any harm, um, certainly. And against a team like Columbus, um, I, I think the fact that he's maybe boosts the team in terms of their ability to keep the ball a little bit more, uh, is also a help because as much as Losada said, it, you know, he looks at possession last and it's not that important to him. It does become, it's not that it's not important. You know, we shouldn't take that to mean he doesn't care about possession. It's just on a list of things he holds as high priorities. It's just not at the top of right. the high priorities.
0: Possession is a means to an end and it's not the yeah. primary means for, for his system. Whereas in, as we'll talk about in the next segment, I'm sure for Columbus, possession is the primary means to to their, their strategic ends mm-hmm. uh, really quickly before we bring Pat Murphy on Jamil Assad also pulled at halftime in this one. Didn't look great. Was forcing passes was again, playing in central midfielder, occupying the same spaces as junior Moreno and Moses Nyman, instead of being up and wide. Um, and, and just the, the attack faltered because of it. Um, I don't know if the idea is to is for him to cut inside so they can play more of a 3-5-2 or 3-4-1-2 with the ball while while being a 3-4-3, 3-4-2-1 team out of possession. I have no idea why he's dropping so deep and coming even narrower than he normally would be, but he is. And that's two games in a row that he's done it, and it's just not working.
1: Yeah, um, it it is a good question that, you know, unfortunately – for a post game press conference on the West Coast at like one thirty in the morning, uh East Coast time, you don't really get to ask nine or ten questions, which this definitely would have been on my list of things to ask. Um, I, I did ask about the halftime subs and and whether he got the changes he wanted out of the players that came in, but the flip side of that question is, of course, well why why did you look to remove the guys you removed um And you know, Assad again wasn't really a factor uh he's i'm looking at the passing graph right now and if you look at um the passing network his average location uh in the first half is actually lower than Niyamen's over Niyamen's 86 minutes now some of that is that in the second half that kitchen sink approach we saw um if people want to keep bringing up Bielsa with Lozada, we saw the the Bielsa formation that 3-4-3 diamond where Naaman was the high player in that central midfield and Felipe was deeper. Um, so some of that is inflated, but Assad's still too deep. Um, and the, I, I assume now that it's two games in a row that it is part of the idea. Like you're part of the front three, but we want you to come back and help the central midfield in possession. We want you to maybe carry, get the ball and carry it. This is something Losada brought up post game was that um, he was kind of exasperated that um players that were told that there would be spaces to attack on the dribble and just carry the ball into those spaces, he was exasperated that players weren't doing that. Um, and I think that informs some of it. But, you know, the other side of this is it's now two games in a row where we've seen more of Assad deep uh, than up with the front three. And it has seemed like Sorga and Flores don't have enough numbers around them, which is weird when the num- you have so many people flooding the other end, your your attackers should not be lacking for numbers around them. But when you break the structure by having Assad come off of that front three and join the central midfield, the numbers have to come from somewhere else. And maybe, maybe this is a problem with Assad dropping too deep. Maybe this is a problem with the rest of the group, not making up for that. I'm not exactly sure, but it's definitely a concern of mine and it's, it's a concern of mine enough that where I'm thinking, you know, maybe Assad's position is, is in question as well. Not that, um yeah if you're in that front three all all of those guys should be a little worried just because the creation the chance creation hasn't been there, and the execution of what has been uh hasn't been very good. I think Flores has put every shot he's taken this season over the bar um he has a he's been on a weird knack of just scooping the ball um for some reason uh sorga missed the one the the best chance he's had all season he missed it um uh so yeah uh I do wonder if you know Paul Ariola's timeline should be maybe not this week but next week uh that that
0: return to home um, just in he, time for a double game week
1: right um so he could be in line and if you're asking me well who who does Ariola replace in this group right now i would say it's probably Assad just based on performances um yeah but i am curious to know more from the coaching staff's perspective because if it's happened two games in a row it's not uh, a player doesn't take up a position like that two games in a row this early in the season without it being a directive. That's not a, you know, your number ten has decided he doesn't trust anyone behind him and is dropping off. Um, this is more of a like, I want you to do this thing. Um, so I want to know one, why, uh what they are looking to gain out of it, and two, where it's going wrong. Because it's clearly not working. They're just not creating very many chances going forward, and some of it is like i said flores and sorga find themselves somehow kind of going it alone inside the the danger areas um which this whole system seems designed to prevent ever ever having that happen the problem should be there are too many guys forward and we're exposed on the counter which is happening but we're not getting somehow the we're side. getting
0: both of those problems yeah yeah we're, we're not getting the benefit of it um You know, we'll put this game against the Quakes in the rearview mirror. They're a very good team. First place in the West. And uh, we will look ahead to the game against the preseason consensus best team in the league. Um, You know, a completely normal turnaround for DC United. We
1: did say when the schedule came out that this was not going to be a lot of fun. You know, Rev at Revs, at Quakes, at Crew in weeks two through four. Not great for a team that is trying to figure out what they're doing uh, in the new system.
0: No, not at all, but here's what that, that, you know, you got to go with the schedule you have and that's what we're going to do. So we will be right back to talk about the Columbus crew. Stick around. It's filibuster. All right. Say you're at work and, uh, something unfortunate or untoward happens and you need some legal representation to, uh, to assert your rights. In that situation, whether a boss mistreated you, you were fired unfairly, uh, or or, or something worse happens. Ben, in the District of Columbia and Northern Virginia, you know who to call, right?
2: Yeah, you called the Ehrlich Law Office because you have
0: rights. That's right. And your rights matter. And you deserve to be free from harassment. And you deserve to work. The Ehrlich Law Office handles workplace discrimination. They do civil rights. Uh, if you have a wage theft issue, they are there for you. If you have uh, a separation from your employer that you want to, to get down on paper and you're dealing with, uh, a non-compete clause or, or something to, to that effect. If you, uh, if you feel like your civil rights have been violated by a local government, call the Ehrlich law office. Uh, if you want a free consultation, Tell them we sent you. Go to EhrlichlawOffice.com slash filibuster. Welcome back to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. DC United will visit Historic Crew Stadium for the final time ever this Saturday to face the defending MLS Cup champion Columbus Crew. Watch it. Uh, Saturday, 1.30 p.m. on NBC Sports Washington, Tele-Exitos, DCUnited.com, or ESPN Plus if you are off in the hinterlands. A uh, bit of a change in the start time from last weekend's 11 p.m. Uh, kickoff. So, you know, I guess Don Garber's trying to keep us on our toes or something, or at least Dan Kordamanch is. I don't know. Um, here to talk us through why the result may or may not be different from last weekend most likely the latter, is Pat Murphy, our good friend from MassiveReport.com and the Massive Report podcast. Thank you, Pat, for coming on.
2: Yeah, well, I owed you one after you came on our show, so uh, I felt like I needed to pay back the favor. But yeah, thank you guys for having me.
0: Uh, We have a tradition here. We have to start every interview the same way. What are you drinking?
2: Yeah, I have a uh, Brew Dog Hazy Jane. It is a New England style Indian pale ale, and uh, it's pretty good. I uh, don't know if I've had this one before, but
0: it's good. I enjoy a good hazy. So, um, it's a trend I'm, I'm okay with in, in the beer world. Uh, what's the vibe right now in Columbus? Um, or at least, you know, early in the season and coming into the season, you went out and won MLS cup in a walk despite missing two of your best players. Uh, and, and then went out in the off season and just got
2: better. Yeah. It's been interesting because, you know, the off season, like you said, they add Bradley Wright Phillips, they had Kevin Molino, they add Perry kitchen, who probably wasn't talked about as much just because the other two guys are bigger names. But, uh, in terms of a depth piece, I think he's going to be, um, and already has actually played, um, and, and done well. Um, they also ended, added a young, uh, midfielder and Alexander Matan. So yeah, I, I mean, on paper, at least it looks like they've gotten better. Um, I'm still waiting to see it all on the field because it's been such a weird start with champions league um, you know, the start of the season getting pushed back and then champions league and everything. Um, and actually the start of the season being pushed back probably helped the crew a little bit just because they played, you know, into December. Um, so, you know, the focus has been to try and balance both schedules and I think it's probably good for the crew that the open cup got that pushed out of the way. Not sure if they would have advanced into it anyway, given the weird scheduling. But, um, you know, two draws in MLS play so far, both 0-0. Only team in the league who hasn't scored a goal. Only team in the league who hasn't given one up yet. Um, I think I know from talking to uh, Caleb Porter uh, about this last weekend that, that while they're not happy with the two draws and not happy that they haven't scored, um, they do realize that, you know, that's that's not the worst case scenario given the, the Champions League, you know, now in the quarterfinal round, um, play that game on Wednesday. Against Monterey, um, you know they, they realize other teams have been losing games that are also in the Champions League, and, and if you look in the the last few years, you've seen teams kind of have their whole season derailed that have put effort in the Champions League. So two draws to start the season is not the worst result. You would have liked to see them score a few goals in MLS play, but they have done that in Champions League. So um, it's it's been kind of a balancing act, which has made it tough to kind of judge the team as a whole.
1: Uh, Pat, I know that, you know, we, we just spent a bunch of time talking about DC's injuries. And I know from earlier today that, um, Columbus has their own concerns. You know, um, Giossi has a shoulder thing. Uh, Jonathan Menso was iffy. Perry Kitchen is supposedly, uh, out. Um, I think Darlington Nagby and Artur were like playing, but not necessarily fully fit. Um, how is the, the, the projected starting lineup? Because, those guys, it sounds like, are going to play against Monterey more than they are against DC. Um, what are you expecting of them on the weekend, uh, with the possibility of resting or rotating some of those key guys?
2: That is a good question, um, and it's been kind of a, a mixed bag lineup for MLS play, just because of, of the way Champions League has been. Um, I think it kind of depends how Wednesday night game Wednesday night's game goes. Uh, I imagine it'll be a you know a hard fought close game. Um, you know, uh, assuming Giassi Zardes is good to go, he was one of the players that Caleb Porter today wouldn't give a concrete answer on. We do know Jonathan Mentz is healthy. He actually talked to reporters today. So, um, you know, he he said he's fine. And it was just a tight hamstring that they were precautious about with him. Uh, Perry Kitchen's still out. So I, I imagine that'll carry over to D.C. But, yeah, I, I would not be surprised if it's a rotated lineup once again. Uh you, you know, get a Bradley Wright Phillips in there um the one thing that the crew do have going for them, Lucas Elreion is suspended for this game, so um you know he played ninety minutes on last Saturday. I imagine he will do the same uh against you guys, and then the rest of the lineup is is gonna be an interesting guess. Artur came back from off season surgery, Darlington Nagby was a little banged up earlier. Both those guys seem to be progressing. Um, but if they have to go 90 minutes, say on Wednesday night, I could certainly see some rotation there, um, especially if Perry Kitchen gets back. But um, they they added Isaiah Parente, a homegrown rookie in the off season, and then just got uh, Liam Cooper from Toronto on loan. I'm not sure the quarantine rules at this point in in our COVID lives, so I don't know what the the situation is for sure with him. But that'll be just under a week of of him being here. Um, so yeah, I do expect some rotation. In, in that lineup, um, how much I think will just kind of depend on how guys make it through the game in Mexico on Wednesday.
0: I want to talk more about that game in Mexico. Take a little detour before we we get into the DC United sure. game. Um, fill us in. How is the the series against Rayados going, and and what do you see happening on Wednesday?
2: Yeah, last week's game was one of the best soccer games, uh, best club games I've seen at. Crew Stadium, Mafre Stadium, Historic Crew Stadium, whatever you want to call it. Um, You know, aside from maybe some U.S.-Mexico games there, it's probably as good as I've seen. Um, It was just, you know, an intense game. Uh, You know, Monterey came out, got an early goal. And at that point, I looked to the guy uh, sitting next to me and was like, this could be a route. And then the crew settled in. Um, Lucas Zelareon kind of took things over, especially early in the second half. Created the first of the crew's goals um, and then scored the second. Really nice play on, on the first goal of the ball. It looked like it was going to go over the end line. He went and hustled to, to body a guy off a ball, save it, a couple step overs, and played a ball across uh, for, for Milton Valenzuela to finish. And then the second goal was just a one-time, a nice one-time strike. Um, the crew did give up an away goal, uh, or a second away goal, very late in stoppage time. In fact, I think it was the last, really the last meaningful kick of the ball on the cross. Um, just you know, kind of lackadaisical defending at the end of a game. Um, And Caleb Porter talked today about the fact that, you know, if Columbus can get a lead in Monterey, in Mexico, um, you know, they have to do better at killing off a game and and keeping that focus late. But it was just a fun game. Obviously, you know, if you've paid attention to to our stuff and and really any crew stuff last week, there was a lot of controversy in terms of the refereeing. And I do think there was something to that. You know, Zellerion got a very questionable yellow card. There was a VAR decision that was probably the right call, but I don't know if you can make it conclusively on an offside call on at least the angle that they showed on television, which is what it looked like the referee saw. Um, so you know that played its part. But from a pure just soccer standpoint, it was a fun game. It was back and forth. You know, even when Monterey dropped defensively, they still had chances to counter. The ball was moving. It, it, it was just a lot of fun. It was it was good soccer. Um, you know, and and you don't always see that in MLS, um, especially. Like, you know, last year with all of the the match congestion and whatnot, you know, games just seemed to drag a lot. So it was nice to have a game where it was just fun uh, uh, to watch. And, you know, the crew, for their credit, uh, played well against a team that, you know, has a significantly larger budget and, uh, you know, more depth. Monterey didn't have all their attacking pieces in, so it'll be interesting to see with those guys back tomorrow. But, yeah, it was was just an entertaining game, And, and I hope tomorrow's game is the same.
1: Uh, Pat, you mentioned, you know, Zellerion, uh yeah. being suspended for tomorrow or when our listeners are probably going to get it tonight. Um, so obviously for DC, that's pretty terrible news because Zellerion has played so well uh, when he's been called on in MLS. There's been some injury problems, but when he's been available, he has looked like a guy that was worth spending the money that Columbus spent on him. Um, is there anything that another team has done that has managed to, Contain him a little bit or like done anything to sort of slow the crew down because right now it seems like uh DC's only doing the one thing. And if, if the answer here isn't uh pressing with everything you have uh on Zellerion, then uh, I don't know if this is going to be a game where DC needs to score like four to get a, a, even a point.
2: I'll be very interested to see the approach for DC given that style of play. Um, what both Philly and and Montreal did well against him to to kind of limit him to some degree was they kept two or three guys around him. Um, You know, Philly, especially really tried to neutralize him. It was very clear that that was, um, you know, a a focus. And I imagine that's going to be a thing a lot of MLS teams do this year. And we talked about that on our podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, just how does he, you know, adjust to year two, you know, MLS newcomer of the year last year, which I, I, there were a couple other guys I may have given that award to, but certainly deserved MLS cup MVP, and uh, with the way he played in that game, so you know a name that people know now, and uh, you know he's been pushed out to the wings a lot just to create you know find space, and he's not as effective out there. I mean he can still play a good ball um so teams have had some success the The Montreal game was a little different. It was played in you know Fort Lauderdale at three p m it was ninety some degrees, and the whole team just looked sluggish the whole mm-hmm. time um and obviously, there was some rotation there. So um, you know, I'll I'll be interested to see if other teams take up kind of what, what Philly was able to do and if then they are able to do the same thing. Obviously, you know, Philly was was the best team in MLS defensively last year, so there's obviously a focus from Jim Curtin's men on that. But yeah, that's been that's been, you know, I think the key. Um even at times last year when, when teams were able to neutralize him to some degree, it certainly limited the crew's attack, uh, you know, and, and and when he wasn't on the field, you mentioned he was hurt. They were they were not in the same group um offensively. So
0: outside of try to stop Lucas Zeloran from finding the ball, um, and maybe Columbus doesn't score that way, what are the weaknesses in this team? We talked about how it got stronger from an MLS Cup champion over the offseason. Where are the holes in this lineup?
2: Yeah, I think um the the right wing is still a question mark. You know, Luis Diaz, Derek Etienne are the two guys there Um, Derek Etienne had a really good playoffs really good MLS Cup uh, but you know he's a guy obviously MLS people will know you you, I'm sure your listeners are are well aware of him Um, you know a lot of speed doesn't always have the final product and same with Luis Diaz just a young kid so you know that's a place where if you can funnel the ball there there'll be chances they just don't always you know find the right guy on the cross things like that Um, I think if Milton Valenzuela doesn't play at left back for the crew, and it's Waylon Francis, a guy who in 2015 was an all-star for the crew but has never recreated that form. Um, he's a guy that can be picked on to some degree. And I'll be interested to see the center-back pairing for this game um, after the, the Monterey game. If it is Keda, you know he's a young, homegrown player who's getting better for sure, but you, you can certainly target him in, as opposed to any of the other three center-backs. Uh, Josh Williams, Jonathan Mensah, and, and Vito Warmhor. Um, you know, so so those would be places I would uh, particularly look to attack um, if those guys are on the field. And I do think, just in general, the the principles behind the way DC wants to play with the pressing, and and we talked about this last night on our show uh, a little bit. You know, that that Red Bulls kind of you know pressure, pressure, pressure has caused the crew problems before. They want to possess the ball. They want to build out of the back um, all those, you know, the, the, the pretty soccer type of thing. And, you know, when a team doesn't allow that, they get frustrated and, you know, it's, d- do they realize the plan B of, okay, we got to play long balls at this time. And, you know, obviously they work on it, but when you focus so much on preparing this way every week, and then you go to a, a more direct strategy, how does that, how does that work for you? So I do think that just in general, a tactic, tactical thing could help DC to some degree. Yeah.
1: Thinking about, um, uh caleb porter overall you know for fans for for dc that maybe didn't really watch uh much of his time in portland where he sort of started out with one very kind of idealistic approach and kind of changed over time um columbus the success that he's had since arriving um the obviously winning it all last year um it seems like kind of hitting the you know, the the next step as a coach, you know, really figuring out how to be a team that does want to play a possession style but can do something else. If it's not if that's not available, or if it's not working, they've they've solved playing without Darlington Nagby or Zellaryan. Um what are your impressions overall as far as um Porter being able to get these results? Because it seems like, you know, like you said, this stage of the season, Columbus only has the two scoreless draws in the league, but most teams in the champions league would take that, you know, Philadelphia has had a home loss to Miami already, you know? um, So how, how do you think he's dealt with the fact that even rotating so much, he's still managed to figure out a way in these games to get something out of all of them.
2: Yeah. I think one of the biggest things for Caleb and, you know, we can talk tactics too, but just his, his motivational, you know, side of things, I think he, he's really good. If he has the right guys really good at at that side of things and I think you need a certain player to play with Caleb Porter because he is you know on the guys a lot and and he's hard on guys and you know some players respond to that some players don't and I think the first year he was here in 2019 um, it it wasn't that type of group you know you're coming off of Greg Berhalter who while they philosophically play a similar style of possession and and whatnot to to some degree uh, it just some of the guys were were used to being I don't want to say coddled but you know, used to a gentler coach who, who wasn't going to ride you as much. And, you know, Greg could get on guys for sure, but it's just, a, it's just different. So I think that that's been a big thing. You know, you, you talk about not having Darlington Nagby in the MLS Cup final, getting a kid like Aiden Morris, who unfortunately is out for the season, towards ACL ACL um, in the second Champions League game. Um, you know, rookie homegrown kid who'd only played a handful of games, getting him up for that game and, and, you know, ready to play in that. I think that's where Caleb Porter really shines And then, you know, the, the tactical side of things, you're right. He has changed some, especially since, you know, his, his Portland days, he did play like to play that possession style at Akron, but they just had more talent than most of the teams they played. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, yeah, I, I I think that that's probably his biggest thing is, you know, when you, you get guys in there that maybe aren't your, your number one guy, so to speak um, having them motivated, having them ready. And then, you know, knowing that there's an opportunity and, you know, there's, Certainly, clear starters for the crew, but he's shown a willingness to to rotate guys even when you don't have match congestion. You know, I mentioned the wing position, Luis Diaz and Derek Etienne. Both those guys have played quite a bit, and it's kind of depended on who's on form. So there are certainly opportunities at, at certain positions as well, and and I think that's you know motivated guys to to stay on top of their game.
0: Going off the field, I mentioned at the top that uh, this will be the last time DC United visits historic Crew Stadium. Uh, next time they come to Columbus later this season, it will be at the new Crew Stadium. Um, tell us about this this new building. Obviously, the uh, the home jerseys are are reflecting it in a geometric way that you kind of have to know something about the stadium to to understand. But uh, beyond that, what what what's going on with the new stadium?
2: Yeah. The jerseys are, are, are something. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and, and they've only worn them once despite apparently them being their primary jersey. I think that probably has to do with wanting to wear them more when they get in the new stadium, but yeah, the new stadium, um, you know, for people who have been to Columbus and have been to the old stadium, there's, there's not much around it. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was built, uh, in, on the fairgrounds and, uh, there's the clo- the best thing around it is a a Lowe's so uh not much to do around there uh the new stadium will be downtown it's right down um the street from where the Columbus Blue Jackets play there there's p- plenty of bars restaurants things like that so it'll be uh it'll appeal to the more casual fan a bit more i think just because you, know, you can go get dinner beforehand or, or go out afterwards you don't have to you know then figure out plans to to travel um, and the stadium itself from, from the one time I've been there, they did the Jersey reveal at the stadium looks awesome. Um, you know, they did a lot of homework in terms of uh, traveling to, to other MLS stadiums, stadiums around the world to get some ideas. Um, you know, you'll have a, a bigger uh, nordic Sporters section, kind of the whole South end or North end, I guess um, of the stadium, the sound, I guess, will, will um, you know, be contained way better than it is at at current crew stadium. Uh, You know, they'll have a TIFO rig and and all sorts of stuff like that. So just atmosphere wise, I think it's going to be better. And then from my understanding, in terms of, you know, just VIP suites and, you know, the things that actually make teams money uh, that is all there with, which current crew stadium, which was built in like nine months um, back in 1998, 99 uh, kind of when they realized that they couldn't play it at Ohio state's football stadium, um, you know, it just doesn't have any of the amenities that it should have. And, you know, especially now when you look at some of these NLS teams and what they've got, uh, this will bring them up to, you know, 2021 in, in that standard. So, um, you know, I'm really excited to see it when it's completely done. You know, I hope I get a chance to, to tour it before uh, it opens to kind of see some of the stuff that, you know, I probably won't see because I can't afford VIP suites, frankly. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a very exciting. It is interesting because – there's two other stadiums opening this year. So you've got, you know, kind of a, a mixed bag when, when that's being talked about, but you know, I, I'll be interested to see how all three of these are. I'm actually hoping to go to all three um, when the crew plays at Austin. And then obviously, you know, Cincinnati's an easy drive for us. So uh, I'll be interested to kind of compare and contrast, you know, how these stadiums are and whatnot, but I'm really excited about this one. I think it'll be a big upgrade for the crew.
0: Going back onto the field. Our, our last question is usually how would you, game plan against your own team. Um, you, you've kind of given us some of their weaknesses and in, in those points. What would you be attacking? How would you be focusing on beating Caleb Porter if you had to go up against him this weekend?
2: Yeah, I think the the teams that have done the best, I, I think there's two ways. Either you can sit in a low block and really try and frustrate, you know, this possession, let them possess the ball, but but not let them get anything in the boxes um, and, and play that way. And, and some teams have had success. And, you know, you risk occasionally breaking down that way um, and, and giving up the one goal. And then you have to push numbers forward or teams that have, have also tried to possess and, and really, you know, play with the crew. Um, you know, Atlanta, for instance, when when they were kind of running um, and, that, you know, that was two years ago and the crew weren't on the best form. But, you know, it's it. If you can kind of beat the crew at their own game, that's been successful too. You know, teams that have outpossessed Montreal this past weekend, again, a weird game just because of the heat and, and whatnot, but had more of the possession, got way more shots, um, just weren't able to score a goal. So, you know, those are the two ways that I've seen that have been successful. Obviously, you you have to be good at doing those because – as we've talked about, you know the crew have a lot of weapons, um, and and you know they've only added more. So, uh, but I'll be interested. You know, I mentioned earlier the Red Bull system has has caused this team trouble at times, and you know I think that's probably the closest comparison to what DC's doing now. So um, yeah, I'll be very interested to see how that works, especially coming off a midweek game for the crew and, and one that I imagine will be high intensity and and you know a lot of drama and and whatnot.
0: Well Pat, thank you for coming on the show. Uh sure. why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you?
2: Yeah, you can find our stuff on Massive Report. I'm I'm sure by now uh your readers are aware of that if, if they want to find it. I'm on Twitter at underscore pat underscore Murphy. Um, you know, and so I I've got uh my coverage and stuff there and, and our Twitter account, I think it's just at Massive Report.
0: Find us, of course, at blackandredunited.com if you want to support us financially you can do that at patreon.com slash filibuster we're also on twitter at filibuster dcu for the podcast at black and Red for the website send your emails to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com uh, download subscribe rate review wherever you get your podcasts uh, you can find us there and you know say a nice word about us we'd certainly appreciate that we'd appreciate it more if you just told a friend about the show that's the best way to spread the word so for jason and the absent ben thanking pat one more time i'm adam we'll talk to you again real soon say goodbye jason don't clone me
1: i've had some time to think about it don't clone me